Father, our prayer is that you would just use us to shine the love of Jesus Christ in such a way and your truth that it would penetrate even hard hearts. They would see you for who you really are, how good you are, how wonderful you are, how mighty and incredible and holy you are, and also how loving. And that you draw these people back to yourself. I can think of a few right now in my mind, and I know all of us have these people in our hearts, and we ask that you would draw them back to your love. And we also pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. We have gathered together to worship you because you're worthy. We've also gathered together to hear from you, and so please speak to us through your word. Help us to understand this section of the book of Revelation that it might change our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And it's the last book of the Bible. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We're at chapter 19. Your worldview makes all the difference in the world is how I'm entitling this message. Let me ask you a question. Are hallucinations real? It's yes and no. Okay. It is to the one experiencing it. Very real. But it isn't true to reality and ends up hurting the hallucinator, right? Now, when we think of that as far as our worldview, there are true and false worldviews. And if we view the world in such a way that is incorrect, it might be true to us, but it will hurt us in the end. That's what we've seen in chapter 17 and chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Now, what is a worldview? You're probably wondering, well, what's that, Larry? What's a worldview? It's the way you view the world. You probably want a little more sophisticated definition, so okay. Uh, This is uh, one definition. The term worldview is adapted from a German word that means a perspective or outlook on the world. When we talk about your worldview, we are referring to your perspective on life. Put another way, your worldview is the filter that helps you make sense of your experiences and the reality around you. Now, I like the way he used the word filter, because I believe that a biblical worldview, that from the Bible, since God wrote this book, this is God's view of the world, his view has no filters. Makes sense, right? Okay, so from a biblical worldview, but all other worldviews distort reality through these filters in various ways, okay? Three influences of distortion that we all have. Number one, our finiteness. We are small. That is our, due to our time and space. We're limited to a particular time. Some people, 400 B.C. or whatever, that was their time. We're in the 21st century. We're limited to this time, okay? Uh, we might think our time is the smartest time in the universe, but, you know, that's just because you're pride and full of ego, okay? It's, 
but we're limited to time. We're also limited to space. Here we are in this little spot right here. You know, other people are, you know, grow up in other places and so forth. So our finiteness, that distorts our worldview. But also, secondly, our sinfulness. You see, all of us, every one of us, as Joe uh, brought out, are sinners. And so we skew things and make them and distort them to fit what we want to believe because of our sinfulness. And then third, our cultural influences. Every single culture is fallen. There's no such thing as a perfect culture. All cultures have some good and some bad in them. But they're distorted, and so they, they make... they help the people see things to kind of make sense, but if it's seeing things incorrectly, it will adversely affect them. And what I'm arguing is that all worldviews are incorrect except for God's view of the world because God isn't finite, right? Limited to time or space. God isn't sinful. He sees things from the true and perfect and righteous way. And he isn't influenced by a particular culture or another. He is God. So we want to see things the way he sees things. Now, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which I've argued is really, for Christians, our constitution. This is how we're supposed to live out his message, found in the Sermon on the Mount. He ends the sermon with that statement that we are to build our lives on the rock. He says there's there's two builders, two kinds of builders. You either build your house, your life, on the rock... And then it says, and when the storms of life come, by the way, notice it doesn't say, and if the storms of life come. When the storms of life come, because bad things happen to everybody. We live in a corrupt and messed up world. Some more than others, definitely. But bad things happen to us. So when the storms come, when your life is built on the rock, the foundation, God's word, he'll help you through you'll stay standing. But if your life is built on the sinking sand, on the shifting sands, any other worldview comes crashing down. The wise and foolish builders. Now, our passage reveals that a proper view of reality and the ultimate end of all things, a proper understanding of that will naturally lead to worship. So we're going to be talking a lot about worship this morning. Let's read our passage. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and 
and small. Now the chapter continues and it'll talk about the the bride of Christ and then the great last battle that's going to take place in the world. But here he begins with this section of worship because I want you to notice the contrast. If you remember last week, we saw chapter 18, they were mourning over the loss of Babylon. And Babylon represents the way the world lives and thinks. It's the system of the world. And it came crashing down, fallen is Babylon. And so they're mourning over the loss of Babylon. But here they're rejoicing over the one true God. The Babylonians, you see, the people of the world, had a distorted worldview that led to their demise. True Christianity is the only proper way to see the world. Now, I'm not saying that because I think we're something great, because we're not. (laughs) And even as Christians, sometimes we distort it with our own, as we let the world's worldview creep into ours. But I'm saying this because God is great. His way of thinking is what is perfect. This is how, and he's been good enough to reveal himself to us and his plan. So true Christianity is the only proper way to see the world, and it leads us to worship the one true God. So in verse 1, we see that a proper view of God leads to worship. He starts out after this, so after the fall of Babylon section in chapter 18, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. See, a proper view of God, they're up in heaven, they're seeing God, they're there, they're seeing it the way it really is, no distortion. When the fog is cleared, the caricatures are erased because so often we are bombarded with these false views of God and we tend to think of him as a meanie or as a, you know, an old grandpa or whatever your view of God is. But when all the caricatures are erased and you see God for who he is, it just immediately leads to worship because there is only one true God. And that's the premise of this whole section here. There is only one true God. I want you to turn to Isaiah 44, verse 6. We could turn to a a multitude of different passages. We could turn to uh, many, many passages just in the book of Isaiah that brings out this fact here. But let me just, we'll just read the one, Isaiah 44, verse 6. It says, this is what the Lord says. Now, when you see Lord in all capital letters in your Bibles, that's a translation of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. So, there it is. This is what Yahweh says, okay, from his perspective. Israel's king and redeemer, Yahweh Almighty. I am the first And I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is only one true God, according to the Bible. And in fact, if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, we see on the flip side of that that all other gods are false 
gods. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. By the way, that makes logical sense. If there's only one true God, then every other God is a false God. Look at what it says. This is tragic, tragic time here. The, the Hebrew people had received the revelation of the one true God, Yahweh, but then when they got in their land, they were... Uh, told and taught by the surrounding nations and sucked into believing in their gods. And here's what he says about that. He says, they sacrifice to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. That's the tragedy. All other gods are false gods. Now, some of your translations might read that a little differently. Maybe your translation says something like this. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. ESV, other translations. In fact, that's a more accurate translation. The Hebrew word sedim means demon. That's how it's translated in every other part of the Bible. It literally does say that all false gods are demons. That's what it's saying. So the NIV is correct. They are false gods, but I'm not sure why. In fact, this is an update. The old NIV translated it demons like it's supposed to be. Well, what are you going to do? Okay, but here's the point. There is only one true God. All other gods are false gods, and they're actually demons. That's the teaching of the Scriptures. Now, that brings us to a question that's very, very important in our day and age. It's argued about and and so forth in in, uh, political circles and other circles. What about the God of the... Christians and the God of Islam, aren't they the same God? Some people ask that question. Is Yahweh Allah? According to this passage, the passage we've been reading, according to the Bible, they are not the same God. There is only one true God. Allah is not that God. And in fact, when you look at this and when you start to actually compare the two instead of, and I suppose people want to just be, you know, kind. They don't want to, you know, you know, I don't know, cause waves or whatever in certain different circles or whatever. So they say things like this. But when you actually dig in and look at the Bible and compare it to the Koran, you see that they are completely different. About the only thing they have in common is that both beliefs believe there's only one God, monotheism. But everything else about these two gods is completely different. Uh, Yahweh in the Bible is triune. The God of the Bible is a trinity. There's one God who is three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, three persons. The one God. That's the God of the Bible. Allah is not triune. In fact, the Quran completely rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. Two completely different gods. He can't be triune and not triune. Yahweh has a son. Jesus is called the Son of God. Allah does not. The Quran clearly teaches Allah does not have a son. These are completely two 
different gods. Yahweh cannot lie. According to the book of Hebrews, it is impossible for God to lie. That's a quote. In the Quran, several places, it actually says Allah is the greatest deceiver. That's a quote from the Quran. These are not the same God. Yahweh loves everyone. You know, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But Allah, according to the Quran, several verses, only loves those who love and obey him. These are two completely different gods. In fact, I would dare say from the teaching of the scripture to say that Allah and Yahweh are the same God is blasphemy. Now, I'm not saying that the first thing you should say to a Muslim is that Muhammad is a false prophet and Allah is a demon. But it is true. And we don't help anybody to negate that fact. We don't help anybody by pretending. People need truth encounters. By the way, that's another big question. How can we reach Muslims for Christ? And there's different ideas and thoughts on this, but every single Muslim I have ever heard of coming to Christ came because of a truth encounter. It came because of a dream. It came because someone shared with them the truth that Allah is the wrong God and that Muhammad is a false prophet, and that Christianity is true, and Jesus is Lord. And they had to wrestle with that because they have to deal with that. You know, for a Muslim to become a Christian, that's like you're going to get cut off. You might even get killed. Those people are not going to come to Christ just by being nice and giving them free stuff. It doesn't work. It has to be truth encounters. Now, of course, with love. Do we love them? Or do we just want to get along? And so we see here, there is only one true God. Christians have no other option. This must be our belief if we're to hold true to God's worldview. And here we see he's the one true God, and that leads to worship. It says, uh, Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Salvation. God is the rescuer. The one true God is the only one who can rescue us, who can help us. See, we are helpless. We cannot save ourselves. And yet, but God loves us so much, he sent his son to die on the cross for us. He's the only one who can truly rescue us. Glory belongs to him. He is the beautiful one. When you contemplate the attributes of God and really begin to think about his perfections, it leads you to worship and see that he is the beautiful one. He Power belongs to him. He is the almighty, not just the little power. <laughs> Spoke, and then your whole universe comes into existence. That's amazing. Okay, this is the God of the Bible. And so salvation, glory, and power. So hallelujah is the proper response. This is what they sing, hallelujah. By the way, it's kind of interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament where you'll see hallelujah. Now, it's prevalent in the Old Testament because it's a Hebrew word. It's not a Greek word. 
It's a Hebrew word, hallel, to praise Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh. So praise Yahweh is what it means. But here we see it. The, the book of Revelation, by the way, quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the entire New Testament. And it's bringing these two together. Here's the true God. And so the natural response is hallelujah. Hallel. The original readers who were Jewish people, they would have been reminded and thought of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which are the psalms they sung during Passover together. And it was a way of saying praise to God, uh, a cry of joy in the Lord to the Jewish world. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but it started out. Did you see where it says after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, okay? Now, now uh, when you think about this, their worship is anything but quiet and reserved. Would you agree? Let me just read it again. Maybe some of you didn't get this, Okay. <laughs> I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah. Okay. So, so what we say, let me see, stoic worship, cerebral worship is missing out. God is calling us to this kind of worship. I, I hear this a lot, and probably you've heard this as well. People will say, and I think they mean well when they say it, Just worship God the way you feel comfortable. You will never find that phrase in the Bible at all. You will find the exact opposite of that because it is not about us. It is about God. We don't worship him the way we feel comfortable. He says, no, I want you to worship me the way I want to be worshiped. And so we got to get out of our whatever little box that we've made and say, you know what? It's not about me. I'm going to worship God the way he wants to be worshiped. And I, I tell you, as you get more and more of a glimpse of the true God, the wow factor will cause you every now and then, I hope, to shout, hallelujah, <laughs> Woo! our God is awesome. Okay, something, a little bit, maybe like when you shout for the Vikings. Okay, you know, this year they're playing at their own house. It's going to be the first time any team ever played the Super Bowl in their own house. You're, when that happens, you guys, I hope you're going, woohoo, right? But I hope it's a whole lot more when we gather together and we say, we're worshiping the one true God. Hallelujah. Okay, that's, that's what we're seeing here, okay? Just uh, worship. Okay, so a proper view of God leads to worship. Verses two through four, we see a proper view of God's judgments leads to worship. Look what he says. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. A proper view of God's judgments leads to to worship. He begins by saying here, true and just are his judgments. Paige Patterson in his commentary on this makes this statement. He says, periodically, newspapers introduce a solitary figure who, after years of imprisonment, is set free because of new evidence proving he was falsely indicted and convicted. While a judge or jury void of moral judgment conceivably could knowingly convict someone of a crime that they knew he did not commit, the vast majority of these cases of injustice represent errors in human judgment. Since God is omniscient, that means he knows all things, he is incapable of making an error. Though he remains the only judge in the cosmos whose judgment is inevitably true, he is also impeccably just. People will make mistakes, and I do believe many actually did it viciously and evil. Evilly, these, these people who were sentenced even though they were innocent. But God would never make that mistake because God is all-knowing, And he is all loving and he is perfect in his justice. For true and just are his judgments. In Thomas Trevathan's book, The Beauty of God's Holiness, this is an excellent book, by the way. He makes this statement. He says, God's perfect goodness, his moral holiness demands that he stand opposed to evil and sin, just as light stands opposed to darkness. The two are incompatible. And because this holiness, this light, is divine goodness, his opposition is not the passive resistance of a mere spectator. His holiness rises up in active resistance to all evil, to all that cheapens and distorts and destroys his creatures. The Holy One in his perfect goodness is actively and intensely set against evil. He judges it as the only holy judge of all his creatures. He will bring about ultimate justice in the world because just and true are his judgments. But the way the world thinks, okay, back to the worldview idea, the way the world thinks, it has a distorted view of justice and truth. We see the world's way of thinking is corrupt. That's what we've been seeing about Babylon in chapter 17 and chapter 18 of Revelation. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 in this passage. This is a very important passage for discipleship, for our spiritual growth. If you know about the book of Romans, verses, chapters 1 through 11 are highly theological. Great stuff about God and his plan for the world that we see in chapters 1 through 11. Then chapter 12 on, we see very practical statements in light of that good theology. And chapter 12 begins this way. Therefore, in light of chapters 1 and through 11's great theology, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 
to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The true worship is when we offer not just our lips, but we offer our whole lives as living sacrifices to God. That's how he starts. But then look what he says in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The pattern, the way the world thinks. Don't be conformed to the way the world thinks, the world's world view. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're not supposed to conform. We're supposed to be transformed. By the way, that's a passive verb. You don't do it. You allow it to be done you. You can't transform your own mind. We're not able to. That's how limited we are. But we can allow God to transform our minds by the renewing uh, of your mind, especially through his word. As we dig into his word, as we read his word, see, When we're in the world, we're being bombarded by the way the world thinks, aren't we? And that's going to influence us unless we counter that with God's way of thinking. When we read his word, then all of a sudden it kind of washes our minds. And we're transformed by that, by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The world's way of thinking is corrupt, but God's way of thinking is solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Sin has ruined God's perfect world and must be punished. In fact, it will be punished, every bit of it. Now, either, and here's the beauty of God's love, because he sent his son, and Joe read those great passages from Isaiah 53 and others that that brought about the idea that Jesus, the Messiah, came and he took our punishment for us as our substitute. He was punished in our place. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, then his punishment is counted for you. And you won't have to experience punishment for your sin. See, either we will be punished ourselves because all sin will be punished, or when we trust in Christ, he experiences it in our behalf. Daniel Aiken, in his commentary, he quotes John Piper, and this is what he says. If God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in this world, he would not be true, and he would certainly not be just. God here is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. So sin has ruined God's perfect world and must be punished. But when we realize his perfect holiness and his perfect goodness and that we're saved because of that, worship is the natural response. 
Worship is acknowledgement and delight in God's perfection and beauty. God is beautiful in his perfections. When you begin to contemplate the attributes of God, when you think about his omniscience, that he's all-knowing, that he knows absolutely everything there is to know, that he knows all possible worlds, that he knows everything in the future, everything in the past, and he knows it all at once. He doesn't just sit and contemplate and start thinking like we do. He knows everything all at once. That blows my mind and it leads me to worship him. You think of his power, that he's all-powerful. It doesn't take any effort for him to do anything. His all-powerful nature, it leads us to worship and his goodness, his perfections, that he's not just a little bit this and that and the other. He is infinitely powerful, knowledge, loving, kind, so forth. Beautiful. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen a glimpse of his glory? Have there been times in your life, maybe you're digging into the scriptures and just a truth just jumps out at you about God and you just sit there and marvel? Have you ever been for a walk in God's beautiful creation and as the word says that the heavens declare the glory of our God, that as you recognize it, you see the creator in his Beautiful artistic work, far better than any of us could possibly do, right? And you go, and you just went, wow. Okay, a glimpse of his glory. Have you ever had a taste of his goodness? Where though you didn't deserve it, you received his mercy over and over and over again because he's full of mercy. That's a taste of his goodness. Doesn't it just cause you, when you contemplate those things, to lead you to worship? To say, you're wonderful, God. Thank you so much. God's beauty and his perfections. We see this in this, the whole, and it's his perfections even in judgment. He says, for true and just are his judgments, he has condemned the great prostitute. Speaking of chapter 17, when it talked about the prostitute on the beast, not representing one person, but representing the, way, the world's way of thinking, the whole system of the world. He says, it says here, he has condemned her who corrupted the earth by her adulteries and avenged the blood of his servants, those martyrs who died because of that. And then it says, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Her judgment is eternal. Then we see the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they just fall down and worship God. You see, surrender and humble adoration is the natural response when we see God for who he truly is and we understand. This is what they do. They fall down. They, as Kevin's prayer was so beautifully made that, uh, that God, this is natural when we come into contact with God to simply surrender in humility because it's not about us. Surrender and humble adoration is natural response. Resistance and pride is the way of the world. Once again, uh, he quotes Piper, Aiken quotes Piper, who says, corporate worship. Now, he's talking about that time when we all gather together to worship. It's good to worship God wherever you are, right? 
okay? Personal worship of God is great, but there is something special biblically when God's people regularly gather together to worship him. He really likes it, okay? (laughs) Corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. There's something about the gathering together that encourages us to live for God. And when we're just out on our own, it's so easy to, just like the caribou, you know, what, who do the wolves pick on? They pick on the sick ones that are away from the, the herd, right? It's so easy to get attacked, but when we're gathered together, we're worshiping God. Wow, the power comes, is what he's saying here. Because the satisfaction of our souls, we, we delight in worshiping God, is what we were made for. Yeah, I, I'm adding to Piper. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways, and we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will we from that which will be destroyed. Surrender in humble adoration. We bow before the king and we worship him. And then verse five, a proper view of ourselves leads to worship. He concludes this section. He says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Here's what we are like. Now, he's specifically talking about the people of God. But all human beings, we've got to have a proper view of ourselves. You see, the way the world thinks, the Babylonian view of the world, says that people are basically good that we have a few little minor problems and therefore with some, maybe some political adjusting and some education, everybody's going to be nice and we'll have utopia here on this planet. That sounds nice and if it were true, it probably would work out that way, but that's not the case. Human beings are basically evil. Every one of us, our hearts are corrupt. And we have to have a proper view of ourselves before we'll realize what God can do to change us. <laughs> Trevathan, he, he gave some statistics. This is kind of interesting. Uh, some statistics about the way people view themselves. <laughs> and uh, he starts out, he's actually quoting David Meyer's book, The Inflated Self. He says, for example, most people see themselves as better than average in any trait that is personally or socially desirable. Most people see themselves as better than average. Do the math. Okay. All right. The college board, now I'm going to pick on the high school students, okay, The college board recently asked the nearly one million high school seniors taking its aptitude exam to rate themselves in certain qualities compared to their peers. 
60% rated themselves as better than average in athletic ability, and only 6% as below average. A few of them must have been wrong. 70% rated themselves above average in leadership ability, and 2% as below average. In ability to get along with others, 60% considered themselves to be in the top 10%. And a staggering 25% reckoned themselves to be in the top 1%. Less than 1% who responded rated themselves below average in their ability to get along with people. (laughs) Life in United States high schools must now be more wonderful and harmonious with all this leadership and ability to get along than what I recall and then the reports of school administrators suggest. (laughs) These self-ratings, which are comparable to those of older people, so we all have to take guilt in this, in other life situations, hardly reflect a plague of low self-esteem. Gives another little example. I'll just read this too. We also consistently overestimate how desirable we would act. For example, when residents of Bloomington, Indiana were asked to volunteer three hours to an American Cancer Society drive, only 4% agreed to do so. But when a comparable group was contacted and asked to predict how they would react if called on, almost half predicted they would help. We think we're better than we really are. That's the problem in the world. We have this high view of ourselves. When the Bible says that we're sinners in need of a Savior, there is some good in us. Don't get me wrong. We still bear the image of Christ, and the common grace of God is still available. But we need God. In the Bible, even as Christians, it says we are his servants. Praise our God, all you his servants. There's a phrase in a poem that rings true for many people as they shout, I am the captain of my soul. But the fact is, no, you're not. Nobody is. You're either a slave to Satan or you're a slave to God, but you are not a captain of your soul. Trevathan also states, he's quoting one of those Hallel Psalms, Psalm 115. He says, the psalmist begins emphatically, note the repetition, where we too must begin. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Passion for the glory of God begins and is only possible when we consciously choose to reject our own honor, reputation, and self-gratification. As P.T. Forsyth wisely observes, to make the development of man the supreme interest of God, as popular Christianity tends to do, instead of making the glory of God the supreme interest of man, is a moral error which invites the only treatment that can cure a civilization whose religion has become so false, public judgment. 
See, a proper view of reality leads to worship. It leads for us to focus on God. Praise our God, all you his servants. And Christians fear God. You who fear him, both great and small. Now, the fear of God, which the Proverbs says is the beginning of wisdom, it's not the kind of fear that you cower away from God. It is the kind of fear that causes you to draw near in humbleness to God. It is a reverential awe, the thrilling privilege and appalling apprehension of meeting the creator of the universe. That's the fear of God. I remember one time when I was in Colorado, I was at a conference and I went for a walk during a break and I was in the, in the woods and the mountains and just walking and enjoying God's creation. And as I'm walking, uh, I turned a corner and I came into contact with God. And it was not a pretty sight. Literally, I remember it just all of a sudden, boom! I literally just stopped. And I was just in absolute fear of God because he convicted me of sin in my life. You see, prior to that, I had written a book. I wrote a book on all topics, worship and the attributes of God. And he convicted me of my pride. I never touched the book again. Never published it. It's gone. I don't care. I don't want to rob God of his glory. And I experienced the fear of God, but I'll tell you what, it didn't cause me to run away from God. It caused me to walk into his arms because he loves me and he loves you. We have to have a proper view of ourselves, though. This way the world thinks, the Babylonian way, doesn't work. True worship is always theocentric, God-centered, not human-centered. Your worldview makes all the difference in the world. I remember a long time ago, me and a couple friends of mine, Brad and Todd. Brad and Todd were brothers. That will become important to the story. The three of us were down in Rochester, and it was uh, one winter. We were walking on the ice of a frozen river, and as we're walking along, Brad all of a sudden falls through the ice. And he just breaks through, and he's trying to climb up back on the ice, and as he tries to climb up, it breaks through again, and he tries to climb up again, and he breaks through again. And don't worry, it wasn't deep enough to really be harmful to him, but, but he's climbing up, and his brother Todd is just laughing his head off at him, you know, just dying of laughter. And then Todd goes through, okay? So he breaks through, and then he's like climbing up on the ice and breaks through, and he's climbing up back on the ice. And I look at the two of them, and I look at myself, and I go, and I got over to the shore, and then I started laughing my head off, man. I mean, it was hilarious. And we, we, we did get them out and got to a nearby house, and they dried them off and everything. So everything was okay. But the p- point is, okay, we thought that the ice would hold us up. You see, the world thinks its way of thinking is going to hold it up. But it's not going to. People of the world thought Babylonianism would hold them up, but it 
didn't. It fell. Revelation 18. A proper worldview. The biblical worldview. God's view of the world. Is the only one that works. And that leads to worship. Extravagant worship. If God sent you a message. That he was coming to dinner. Would you serve him leftover meatloaf from a week before in your refrigerator? I hope not. Listen, he is coming to dinner. In fact, he's here right now. He's in our midst. The Bible says God is everywhere, and he especially inhabits the praises of his people when they gather together. He is here right now. And so my question to you is, will you worship? Let's do that. Let's bring up the worship team. And let's acknowledge our great, incredible God and give him the praise that he's due. And I hope you find delight in the worship of the Lord.
someday we're going to get to worship God. Completely clear-minded. No distractions. Absolutely pure view of what he's like. We'll be on our faces. (laughs) But we'll be delighting in him in such a way that nothing you can think of right now that you enjoy is comparable to it. And we get a glimpse of that, especially as we worship him, even in this life, when we gather together. Kind of a motley crew we are, aren't we? You know, (laughs) God loves you. (laughs) Just look around. Look around. You're all quite different, aren't you? God loves every one of you. And he loves it when you worship him. When you see him for who he really is. And by the way, we haven't gotten to the very end yet. But let me just cheat. We win. Okay. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. God wins. And he allows anybody to switch sides. No matter what you've done. He wants you to switch sides right now. Total forgiveness available because of Jesus Christ. That's how good our God is. I hope you make that decision. May God bless you. I pray this week even, may he bless you with glimpses of his glory and tastes of his goodness that just profoundly change your very being. And may he walk with you for the rest of your days in Jesus' name.